For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you doing? Did you know that you can ask me questions about the show and about sustainability in general on social media? I'm at Mrs. Press on Instagram and Twitter or by email hello at clairepress.com. Someone just asked me about the best thing I've done at Vogue Australia. I had to think, but I reckon getting the word upcycle onto the June 19 cover has to be a contender. Back then, it was still considered a bit weird, but a lot has changed and fast. Now, upcycling means taking something that's usually unloved, so discarded, trash, and transforming it into something new and better of a higher value. It's become a fashion buzzword thanks to designers like Marine Serre in Paris and even Sarah Burton at Alexander McQueen. But I reckon it's the next generation of designers that are really pushing it. And this week, you're going to meet three of them. Maddie Williams, Helen Kirkham and Dior Atlantic. If you enjoy this, I recommend you go back to Series 3 and listen to Episode 70 on London's New Guard. And also, in Series 2, we made a similar show on Vogue Italia's Who Is On Next programme, and that one is Episode 61. Let me know what you think, and leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and also check out the show notes on clairepress.com for all the links. Now let's get to the show. We'll start with Maddie who calls herself an eco-feminist and who won the 2019 Redress Award for her amazing collection called The Mourners. Hi, I'm Maddie Williams and I'm a London-based designer who has a real interest in upcycling old textiles and creating new textiles and new clothes out of those. Where are we recording this? Um, We're in a very messy shed which we're sharing with quite a lot of spiders right now, so I hope you're not scared. And I'm really lucky to have this space. It's uh, sort of attached to my flat, and it's great. It's where I made the collection for Redress, and uh, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Actually, you're growing your own tomato plants. You said to me before that you were getting interested in plants, and I know that sometimes you worry that you're not interested enough in making clothing if we look at it from a commercial perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is true. I think so far... I don't know. I definitely have a drive to make things and I want to tell stories and I want to be creative and that excites me. But as soon as someone comes to me and is asking if I if I have a brand, if I, do I have my own brand? Am I starting to sell stuff? I kind of shrivel up inside and I'm like, oh, no, I really, I just haven't thought about that and I don't really want to deal with that. And the idea of like growing or upscaling all of those words are horrific to me and I just (laughs) it just doesn't move me at all in any good way it's interesting I ask you that for a reason Mm -hmm. which is that many designers in your generation from London in particular perhaps British designers are really starting to question the system I feel like if you probably asked most other creative people in the past like the McQueens etc they probably in an ideal world would would have not had to deal with any of that stuff either but we've been living in a world where you're so forced down into that route it seems unavoidable if you want to be creative it it feels like you absolutely must also become a business person at the same time or else what's the point you can't do anything because the only point to life is making money (laughs) Um, and it's I guess maybe with there's such a 
a general feeling of protest and revolt just generally in the world at the moment, especially in like what well, in the UK right now, you're seeing it with Extinction Rebellion and Brexit, whatever. Like we're just losing faith in the current systems that we have. So maybe we're starting to feel more liberated. Let's talk about your work. You mentioned that you're a textile designer as well as a fashion, if you want to put that in inverted commas, <laughs> designer. You actually create your own textiles from mm-hmm. waste. I've done a few different things over what I guess my two collections that I've done. When your long and industrious yeah, my career, long career. <laughs> and uh, we'll start with your graduate collection. Yeah. So you graduated from Edinburgh College of Art and in two thousand seventeen. You showed. I showed my graduate collection during Graduate Fashion Week, which is in London every year, and then. I kind of did an extended version of that collection, an expanded version for Autumn Winter 18, I think it was, for Fashion Scout, which is affiliated with Graduate Fashion Week, and they showed during London Fashion Week. You wove those pieces using upcycled post-sacks, right? The majority of the plastic waste that I used was deconstructed post-sacks, Royal Mail sacks that I acquired from different post offices about Edinburgh and then I deconstruct those and then reweave them by hand into new textures. When you say deconstruct you tear them up? Yeah so if you have ever looked closely at a Royal Mail post sack it's quite similar to a tarpaulin but it doesn't have that extra kind of film layer that you find on tarps. You can really clearly see the way it's been woven. It's like just strips of equally sized polypropylene it's really easy to just shred it you can just pull it into its long strands with your fingers with your fingers yeah very easy time consuming but very easy and uh, so I kind of worked out a way to cut it into quite chunky strips and then only shred it from two edges so it left with a sort of fringe effect and then I would like use... a crazy shaggy dog it... like the never-ending story yes, dog yes exactly like that <laughs> <laughs> and then I would use those fringy frilly strips to reweave and then kind of create this sort of faux fur texture so that was kind of like I guess the most successful textile that I created a lot of them had a lot of structure either it was like wadded or it had like boning in it one I'd say pair of shorts in the loosest possible terms but it was like (laughs) it was kind of a pair of shorts and a dress had a big circular hole cut out in the middle which held it open held it really rigid which was inspired by like Sheila gigs if you see it's like a Celtic figure that you see carved on some churches and things like that from the past but it's kind of like a fertil- ancient fertility figure and it's basically a a female symbol of a, a feminine presence prying open her vagina and uh, so I wanted to oh, actually when you said it I've just realized I've seen them yeah yes I have yeah I once watched a documentary about it but I'm yeah. I'm deviating those were made by using like an old bike tyre. <laughs> That's what I used to make the the kind of framework for that. In the UK we had this programme called Button Moon, which was <laughs> like a children's TV programme. It was this kind of world... Oh, were they puppets? Yeah, they were puppets, but oh, they were yeah. all made out of like odds and ends. So like Mr Spoon, I think he was made of a bottle and he had spoon arms and there were like milk, the other milk bottles that did things. Everything was just made out of stuff, bits of stuff. And I loved it. So is it a bit like the magic in the mundane? Yeah. As, aside from the political yeah. repurposing? Or the familiar? The, yeah, the, the uncanny. I think what I like is the uncanny. It's joyful, but it's also sinister. There's also a, a thread you could follow back to the folkloric, that kind of 
long history of yeah. making symbols mm-hmm. and entertainment and theatre, I'm going to even say, yeah. out of whatever was lying around, whether that would be a corn dolly yeah. or, a, you know... Exactly. That. No, that's exactly right. And um, When I say a corn dolly, if listeners don't know what that is, we might share some links in the show notes. <laughs> and this is sort of old... I'm sure maybe they did it elsewhere, but certainly I know it from old English country stuff that basically these were rituals around harvest. You would go out into the mm-hmm. fields and you would collect the forgotten ears of corn and then you would weave them into these wonderful dolls. Yeah. Little forms. Yeah. But in a way you do that. Yeah, and... A lot of the inspiration for my first collection, and kind, and it was feeding into this one, but in a less overt way, was um, I don't know if you've heard of the photographer Charles Fraser. He's a French photographer. Oh, Charles Fraser. Fra- Sorry, <laughs> is that how you pronounce no. it? <laughs> oh, no, I'm teasing. I'll give you like God, Charlie. Um, yeah, just old Charles. There's a particular series called Wilderman, documenting pagan rituals that still exist and go on around Europe specifically and the costumes that people are making are absolutely amazing I really loved it and I found it really powerful and that was quite a strong influence in especially my first collection now when we look at any of this though we can't escape the lens of environmentalism Mm. and the pressing necessity that we make do with what is in existence Mm -hmm. let's talk about how you applied that to your most recent collection for which you won the redress award yes congratulations thank you last year and thank you very much but you were inspired by eco anxiety Mm, yes i'd been feeling a lot of eco grief a lot of anxiety and fear around the climate crisis that we are in at the moment and i kind of wanted to do something that expressed those feelings so the concept behind that Often in my work, and it was the case in the previous collection, I tend to sort of imagine this dystopian, utopian future, however you like to describe it, after the fall of civilization as we know it now. And so in my previous collection, the figures, the women, the costumes were more meant to be like goddess-type figures. And then in this one, I wanted them to be more... They were mourning figures, figures of mourning... And they were people that had survived and they were grieving the loss of society and a healthy biodiverse planet. And all of the references were meant to be kind of things that they pieced together from the fragments of what was left behind, drawing on death symbolism and death gods and funeral rites and things like that from around the world. So you can see it maybe in some of the headdresses and the veils. Like That's quite a strong influence from western victorian morning dress like a widow's peak and then i did use quite a lot of memento mori symbolism which means remember you must die in latin and it was quite heavily used in medieval christianity as a way to remind people that life is short and you should cherish life now and and i was kind of wanting to use it in a way to say we must act now like climate change is, is happening our time's running out we, we need to act now and that's kind of what the point of using that your practice is very political you're not just making some stuff well i try i guess <laughs> what is fashion for well i don't know you know what i really don't know um but i think but you don't know because you're questioning it yeah i'm questioning it as it is now I guess if you peel back and you go back to why we have art and why we have clothes and why we have fashion in the first place, it is it's a way to tell stories, it's a way to express ourselves, it's a way to make something beautiful, a way to raise questions and like mirror society that we're in now. It can be cathartic. 
but over time I think that a lot of those principles have been co-opted into making money for big companies and that's kind of what I don't really agree with that or I don't want to be part of that particularly. But your work has a response and in a way is a response to that. Let's talk about the materials. So we're sitting in this shed and we're surrounded by bags of unwanted, unloved textiles Mm -hmm. that you see the beauty and you worked with Bernardo's, didn't you? Yes. In Brixton, which yes. is a charity shop in London, but a specific one that I think if you are regular listeners to this podcast, you'd have heard us talk it? about before because Fashion <laughs> Revolution does some events there. Yeah. And you save their stuff they don't want. What do you do with it? So a mixture of things. I either completely deconstructed it into sort of shreds and um, rewove it into new textiles. I also wanted to experiment with the idea of like doing zero waste weaving in a way that you know how when you knit you're knitting something the exact shape of what it's going to be so you don't have cutting waste and so I tried you can see uh, if you look over here uh, for for Claire um, (laughs) some foam boards which when I was working briefly at Lacoste is on a grad scheme that they were doing interning yeah yeah and um, they were going to chuck away all of their foam boards and so I was like oh can I have those so I would draw out the exact shape of the pattern piece and then warp up that board and so then try to weave the shape. the shape of the pattern piece. And so I only managed to do this on the pair of trousers which are kind of like blue and then have fluffy bones on because, <laughs> oh my God, it took me to watch every single series of Breaking Bad as I wove those. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's going to be vital to upcycle because... As the climate crisis progresses and gets worse and as resources become scarcer and scarcer, we are likely not going to be worrying so much about producing virgin uh, materials, virgin textiles, especially if we're struggling to produce food. It's not going to be high on people's priority list. So we need to think of creative ways to upcycle what we already have. And obviously there's really exciting things being done with like absolute recycling so you know taking a garment and and reducing it straight back down to its fiber and like weaving it you like turning it into a new yarn and then reweaving cloth and doing stuff like that and that's amazing and that's great but obviously that requires like a ton more energy and probably chemicals just depending on what it is so if there's a way that we can as much bypass that avoid that if people feel liberated to just kind of make do with what they have And I don't even think, like, obviously design is going to play a big role in this, but I think it's going to be really important to just educate the public better about how to repair their clothes, how to upcycle their clothes and put that power back in people's hands where it becomes easier. People have the confidence. They feel more comfortable to just sew on a button rather than to go and buy a new top. Like, that becomes an easier option. Like, that's what I think will be really important and and a key turning point. Next up is another British designer, Helen Kirkham. Helen trained in the classical tradition of shoemaking. She worked at Grenson, and when she was a student, she was fated by something called the Worshipful Company of Cordwainers, which we'll get into this, but it's one of the ancient trade guilds of London, and it dates back to the 1300s. But these days, Helen upcycles old sneakers. She's done collaborations with Adidas, Lacoste and Melissa, And I spoke to Helen in Milan, where she was part of an exhibition curated by Vogue Italia's Sara Mino called A New Awareness. 
So we're here at the exhibition space of 10 Corso Como, exhibiting with A New Awareness, which is organised by Sarah Mino. And there's a few of us here exhibiting different ways of working, sustainable practices, and trying to shift a little bit the paradigm of fashion. I'm a footwear designer. I studied first at the University of Northampton, where I did footwear design, and I did more traditional shoes there. Worked with Grenson, did my final collection with Grenson. And Grenson, and for those who don't know, is this wonderful artisanal shoe brand. Yes, exactly. And British. they have uh, factories in Northampton. Then when I graduated, I won the Worshipful Company of Cordwainers. It was actually their inaugural... What? Sorry. <laughs> inaugural... Um, no, no, please unpick. Footwear Student of the Year award. But what, what is the... Wor- what... The Worshipful Company of Corbainers, so it's um, a livery company based in the UK that's all to do with footwear and they support footwear students doing various projects and, you know, giving money and stuff to support students. But can we just look at that word Cordwainers? I happen to know what it means, but it's not a familiar word. It's an archaic one. Yeah, so Cordwainers basically like a shoe maker, someone in the footwear trade. So We actually might find a link to that. I don't know it, but I'll find mm. out. But I'm sure it will be some kind of like Chaucer era word about the yeah. guilds, right? Uh, yeah, it's to do with like livery companies and guilds. I don't really know the, the history of it. But, but um, it reminds us that the art of shoemaking, or if you want to use a kind of word, cobbling, it's yep. age old. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it was really important for me to um, start with traditional footwear and obviously being in Northampton it's kind of the home of uh, footwear in the UK so it was really important for me to study there and to be supported by them and then I went on to the Royal College of Art where I did my master's degree graduated from there in 2016 then I worked at Adidas for a year and then I came back and set up my studio and now it's been going about two years. But what you do is a far cry from the worshipful whatever they were at Cordwainers. <laughs> worshipful company of Cordwainers. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I focus on sneakers and specialise in sneakers. So um, it's obviously different from traditional practices, but they're still very supportive and interested in what I do, which is so nice. But come on, what is it you do? So you <laughs> upcycle sneakers yes. to make new, new out of old and forgotten, wonderful and fabulous and aspirational out of tired and supposedly rubbish yeah exactly so I collect sneakers from trade which is a um, my favorite op shop yeah which is a charity based in the UK and I collect odd sneakers from them so when people recycle their sneakers if you don't tie the laces together quite often in the sorting process they get separated and then they become useless so I take I didn't want to take the pairs because obviously the pairs can be resold. They have uses. So I made my life even more difficult by only taking the odd sneakers to use as my raw materials. Then I break those all down into their component pieces and then yeah, make a new pair out of them. So do you actually have a partnership with trade or do you just go in there and say, got any loose ones? How did you um, find out this was a thing? Yeah, so I went to the warehouse. They have like a big sorting warehouse and I went there just out of curiosity. And then I kind of discovered all these issues and now yeah I go down to the warehouse and and pick up the shoes from there I know that listeners will be right now having their minds blown because there's always something isn't there that you don't know about recycling and about waste this mm-hmm. is something I hadn't considered yeah I know Makes sense, Same. But I, no I never thought about it until they kind of explained and I was like oh yeah of course like if you don't tie your shoes together you're just putting them in a bin and then 
God knows where they're going to end up. So, well, um, some of them end up in Helen Cookham Studio. Exactly. And let's talk about the intricacy of the process. <laughs> yeah. So, essentially, once I've got the shoes, I clean them enough that they're clean, but I like to keep the character of the recycled materials. And something that I find really important, especially with sneakers, I love to like embody some memories and some kind of tactile human nature into the materials so I that's something that I love about using recycled materials and then I essentially unpick everything into its component pieces and then break everything down into kind of shape and size and color and use that to recreate new products and are you stitching these pieces together by hand in a kind of hybrid form of yeah basically so I have a studio in Hackney in East London where I have you know some machines and sander and all that sort of thing and then I um, build it kind of like a puzzle or like a collage and every piece is bespoke and every piece is one off and so much so that even the right and the left aren't the same I was gonna say how do you even get past that when they haven't come from a pair Yeah, exactly. So quite often I use like, you know, there might be a sneaker which has two different parts, but it's like the same material. So I use one part on one on the left shoe and one part on the right shoe. So it feels similar, but it's not the same. You told me that it can take you five days to make one pair. Yeah, exactly. So it's usually four to five days, which is collecting the shoes breaking them down to component pieces cleaning the pieces and then obviously because everything's bespoke sometimes they're more difficult sometimes they're they're easier and it really depends how simple or straightforward it is and usually nothing ever turns out to be simple and straightforward so it takes up to five days who are your customers it's all sorts of people really so I do collaborations with brands and then I also do things for private clients some people are interested in the aesthetic side of things some people are interested in the sustainable side of things what about sneaker freaks who just want something yeah, super unique exactly some people just really love the bespoke unique side of things the fact that it's a sneaker that no one else can own no one else will ever own some people want to wear them some people want to put them on their shelf like it just it really depends and it's so nice to be able to have such a broad spectrum of clients and people that are interested in my work I'll share a link for anyone who might like to order one of these pieces hope you got deep pockets <laughs> mm. it's not cheap no so um, and nor should it be but I mean that was a segue into let's talk about cost and true cost yeah exactly so the shoes start around a thousand pounds and obviously that incorporates the time that it takes to make the completely unique and bespoke nature of the product um, it's completely one-off and also can be extremely personal so people can also send me their old sneakers and then I can use those to make a new shoe um, something that I actually love about sneakers that people really do have an emotional attachment to them more than other items of clothing so I can kind of create this bespoke product just for you that allows you to embed all those memories and stories into one product that you can keep forever on that cost thing you told me a story about a woman who'd come to ask you about your work and then she got a bit huffy because she was like why is it so expensive Mm. but you had an interesting response to that can you share it yeah so obviously I understand that it's expensive of course but it's really interesting because even though I know that not everybody can necessarily buy into the products I try to through my Instagram and through the work that I do try to advocate kind of changing mindsets of people so it's not necessarily just about buying into the product it's also about giving you back some agency over the products that you own so maybe you know what I find so inspiring is people 
send me a DM and they say, you know, oh, instead of chucking my trainers away, I decide to paint them or I change the laces or I cut this bit off. And then it gives them a new sense of purpose and they're taking agency over the products that they own. And I think for me, that's success because that's something that I'm inspiring people to or helping people to change their ideals of what newness is, what newness needs to be. Last but not least is Joran Lantic. I first saw this Dutch designer's work at the International Fashion Showcase at Somerset House a couple of years ago now, I think, curated by Sarah Mower. Now, Joran describes his process as repurposed dead stock. It's kind of upcycling and splicing things together, and it's really political. He went on to be shortlisted for the LVMH Prize and to make a capsule collection for Browns in London. And we also recorded this one in Milan. Hi, I'm Duran. I'm from Amsterdam. I'm a fashion designer and I upcycle high-end pieces that didn't get sold in sale. We first met, not now, but last season during London Fashion Week at the International Fashion Showcase at Somerset House. There were a bunch of designers there from all around the world, but yours was the installation that really stopped me in my tracks. Basically, I wanted to create an installation that was a shop-in-shop, like in a really big warehouse. So it was a part of an Yves Saint Laurent shop. The floor was a combination of Balenciaga with Gucci. Um, There was Prada Marfa in it, and it was a shop that was post-Black Friday. So it was a day after the mega sales, and like the shop got completely ruined. And then you had to imagine that you're the shop owner. You come into your little shop where you were so proud of. And then it's like completely ruined just because there was this mega sale, which is a reflection of what I want to say, which is that I think clothes deserve more respect. I'm trying to find new ways to avoid sale and to avoid this madness of buying too much. So your installation was inspired by the mayhem and crazy madness that unfolds on Black Friday. And you imagined a shop that was totally destroyed by all the people that came through it, buying all the bargains. Yes, yes. (laughs) I think that's like, I don't know, it's so fascinating for me how people react on sale and how you see people get high on buying as much as possible for as cheap as possible just to throw it away again. And I think that's something which is like, for me, it's personally, it feels terrible. So I think I want to communicate and I want to show the people how it looks. But you did that not just with the installation, which showed basically like a kind of hazard scene, you know, when after there's been a police incident and there's tape around it, it was like that. But the clothes themselves, what were they? So you you basically spliced together designer pieces that you'd collected, that you'd sourced with new pieces with I don't know what. Yeah, so it was a one big fusion of vintage and uh, pieces that were in sale. Actually, I did a collaboration with Liberty London. So they supported me with giving yeah, items. And so was print, a, very iconic Liberty print shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We stitched all the, the brands together because it's also, it was kind of a fun way to say, oh, this is how it looks. Like all these sad pieces didn't get sold and they were forced to join together. And I think that's super important because also there's this brand dictatorship going on where it's like you can't fuse a Prada in a magazine, for instance, with uh, Louis Vuitton. I don't think listeners will necessarily know that when a stylist borrows from a big brand, for example, Chanel or Prada, they're not allowed to mix brands in one look on a model for a shoot. So often you will see, and you'll notice it now I've said it, that a shoot will be one page of head-to-toe Prada and then another page of head-to-toe Chanel. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's like the tyranny of the brand. The brand dictates yeah. how we will present their work, even though the stylist is meant to have creative control for an editorial. Exactly. And that's somehow really weird because you, if you reflect on how people look in the street, you know, everybody's combining things. That's the whole point of like fusing brands together, you know, combining Levi's with Chanel or, you know, wearing Nike uh, and having a, I don't know, a crochet watch. I mean, it's all about mixing those kind of things. In a way, though, what you did was quite confrontational or subversive because you were calling out sale culture, but you were also calling out this, what you called brand dictatorship. <laughs> How'd that go down? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, with my installation, it's also a sort of a wink. It's a kind of a humoristic a way. Wink? Uh, yeah. Yeah, a wink? Sorry, yeah, a humoristic way of presenting. So it's I always try to present not too seriously, you know, because, so you can see sort of the ironic in it. And I think that it's very important important for me as a designer to do have this important message but still give this fresh I don't know it's just a fun way to, that it's more accessible for people to see. Let's talk about some of the individual outfits you yeah. designed and the pieces that you sourced. Yeah. Some came from your mum's closet right? Yeah true so basically my mum is always in trouble because she has a lot of designer clothing so I always source in her closet. Does she, she know? Well, sometimes. <laughs> when you say source in her closet, you're yeah. basically nicking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm stealing. Yeah. <laughs> I've been doing that since I was 13. So I think she's kind of used to it now. But basically, we I cut up an, uh, a Dries van Note uh, jacket and um, a dress of Peter Pilotti. And I didn't told her, so she came into the exhibition and saw her dress like completely black stitched to a Givenchy coat. But she loved it and I gave it back to her. So that's good. <laughs> but hang on a minute. So this is an episode about radical upcycling as mm -hmm. a political comment on where we are at in the world. But partly what you do doesn't feel like it fits exactly with that because these aren't garments that have been thrown away. In fact, you nicked them from your mother. But these aren't garments that you've rescued from the charity shop bin. No, so um, that's how I started. I started during my graduation and my first year of my academy. I started sourcing in uh, charity shops and giving the garments a new life. That's the whole beginning of my process of the work. But then I found out that on internet, like you can source all these high-end designer pieces for I think 75% off. And I was, th I was thinking, okay, that's kind of weird because uh, how does that work with value, you know? And can I say where we are now? We're here in the Corso Como sale outlet. Um, so, so we're And that's a wonderful store that sells some of the best labels and curates them in the most incredible way. They're hardly like churn and burn fashion outlet. And yet here we are surrounded by pieces that have gone on sale because there's just too much of it. Exactly. And that's also the pressure that buyers have they're forced to buy so many pieces that they can't sell anymore. And why should they be left here alone? Why not do something with it and just upcycle it and make something unique out of it and just give it another life? Do you feel that clothes have personalities? Yes. The way you talk about yes. them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit creepy about that. No, I think I do. Um, I do think that clothes have personalities, especially because I also think like the whole design process of a designer, you know, I'm a designer too. So I can imagine like you, it's one of your babies and it just ends up in a, or in a landfill or it's burned or, you know, it's in an outlet and you don't want that because it's emotional. And I think that's where I sort of think that clothes have, yeah, have emotions too, because I feel probably the emotions of the designers in it. And I think, yeah, let's then do something with it and create unique pieces out of it where they become special again. I mean, they've always been special, but 
because of the overproduction and the, the overconsumption. And I mean, that's where it goes all wrong. I mean, yeah, basically there's too much and we, it's just too sad to not do anything with it. Can I ask you what you're wearing right now? <laughs> I'm wearing a vintage Adidas sweater. I've, my interns always stitch labels on it. So it has a Marnie, Hermes, Dries van Noot and Balenciaga labels stitched on it. And there's all these kind of stains on it. It's, I think it's bleach. So basically you've, I mean, can we even use the words upcycled, downcycled, recycled, (laughs) value added, customised, DIY? Yes. Some of that. It's all of it. But you've given it a unique Duran take. Yeah. I mean, that we can say. Yeah, we can. What do you think the role of the designer is today? Oh, It's a hard question, though, but um, the role of the designer is to be really conscious about what to produce and how to... Yeah, how to bring it into the world and think about how we can step away from this whole dictatorship. I never talk about sustainability in a way because the core of my process is has always been sustainability and upcycling. So I think, I know it's not there yet, but I think that's like the starting point. You need to be aware of global warming. You need to be aware of the mass production. You need to be aware of where it's made. I mean, all those kind of core values you just need to have before you even consider designing, I think. Just quickly, mm-hmm. step us through your background. So you were raised in The Hague. You went to fashion school where? I was horrible at school. So at first year I did Amsterdam Fashion Institute, but they were too traditional for me because I was cutting up clothes and I didn't want to make any patterns. I didn't want to use any new materials. I only, only wanted to use old materials, so that really clashed. So basically I started going to an art academy where they supported me doing that. Well, in the first year, not really. And then I graduated in 2014. And then afterwards I did a master at the Samberg Institute where I did a course called Fashion Matters, which is completely based on sustainability. And How interesting. Yeah, it was, it was led by Christopher Coppens and Walter van Beijendonk. And it was really researching how to approach the fashion world. Radical. Yeah. What did you want to do when you were a kid? A fashion designer. Did you? Yes. What did your parents do? Such a cliche. How did you know? <laughs> okay, so basically I grew up with my mom and my father died when I was seven months old. So I was alone with my mom and that was beginning 90s. Like, no, well, yeah, I think beginning 90s. So that basically was... There were like a lot of trend festas in my mom's home. There were like always, there was loads of house music. What did she do? Uh, she's an interior designer. So uh, she would wear always Walter from WNLT or Jean-Paul Cochet. So they were all dressed up like constantly. So I think it has been pushed since I was a baby. Mm. And they never told me that I needed to be a fashion designer, but it was like fashion was always yeah. core in the house. So yeah. I guess... People wanted to be a fireman and I was, I don't want to be a fashion designer. <laughs> <laughs> Love. All right, I just want to talk a little bit about what's happened to you this year. Yep. You were shortlisted for the LVMH Prize and I was so happy to see that there was more than one person looking at upcycling, whether it was Bethany Williams. Bodhi and me, yeah. Why do you think that this is a moment for upcycling as a... I want to say buzzword, but I want it to be more. <laughs> I think like the big brands are really, really... like They're really under the loop. So they're really conscious about that upcycling and being sustainable was very very important are they taking it seriously i i hope so i mean i'm also scared that it's a marketing stunt in a way but i think we have to stay optimistic and we should just say okay 
it's really good that they include us now and let's hope that they do it or let's make sure that they that at least 50% of the next LVMH price is upcycling or being sustainable. All right, just finally then, what is it about upcycling apart from the creative possibilities that it gives you that fires you up? Mm. <laughs> well, I, th I think just radical cutting things up is really my thing, which is kind of, I mean, I'm growing now, so I'm working with a team. Like I used to just cut up things like very badly as well. You're actually a destroyer yeah, rather I'm than a an destroyer. upcycler. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Down cycling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but now I work like, with... Step away, this man has dangerous <laughs> yeah. No, but now I work with a whole team which are like, they're very neat. So I can't, I can't cut anymore. I'm not cutting anymore. I'm just doing the design process. But what really gives me this natural high is fusing, just fusing and just seeing possibilities in how to combine a part of a sleeve and make it a pants or, you know, it's just so fun to just find this, this complicated puzzle, you know, you, you, it's a complicated puzzle. It's not easy. It's not a DIY project or something. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's really fun. Is it kind of unique what you do? I'm trying to think. I think there's historical precedent with something like Margiela, but yeah, I think Margiela was someone who was really pushing for DIY. He, he used to say, don't buy my shit, just make it yourself. Where I'm, I hope people can, I mean, I can't make it myself because I do the design process, but the lining is so difficult. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine me doing the lining though, but maybe people can do it at home. I don't have no idea. I mean, it's a compliment, I guess, but I don't think, I think Margiela is a little bit more, um, it's very Belgian and it's also very French in a way. It's very dark colors, beige, uh, jeans, and where I think I'm a little bit more, I'm shouting more with colors, I guess. You know what I think you are? Well. I think you're an anarchic rebel and you're <laughs> dangerous with scissors <laughs> and you're the next big thing. Yeah, hopefully. Well, I don't mean, I mean, that's be all uh, big things. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Come on, you've already made it. <laughs> Thank you very much for Thank sharing you. your insights. See, it wasn't that bad. No, it, it wasn't bad. I have to say, and I'm leaving this in, getting you to do this podcast was like getting someone to the dentist with a fear <laughs> yeah, yeah. of teeth pulling. You were like running away. Yeah, I know. I'm going, I'm not going to be first. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get away because every is just fine. My friends don't feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. 
Because I love you. Because I love you.